Welcome to the IFE podcast series. Today's podcast is an IFE Distinguished Visitor Lecture and features Professor Paul Thordarson from the University of New South Wales. Professor Paul Thordarson is currently the Deputy Head of the School of Chemistry in the University of New South Wales and a Chief Investigator on the ARC Centre in Bio-Nanoscience. His research interests range from nanomedicine and light harvesting materials to supramolecular and systems chemistry. Paul's lecture highlights his involvement in the research field of biomimetic chemistry, which is driven by the understanding and learning from nature in how its chemistry works to synthesize new systems and materials that do complex tasks outside the boundaries that life puts on those tasks. His lecture, recorded on Monday the 30th of July, is entitled Chemistry from Self-Assembly to the Origin of Life. We hope you enjoy this IV Distinguished Visitor Lecture. So thank you, uh, Professor Shu, also here for uh, the invitation and everyone here this morning. Uh, fantastic to uh, see the dynamics here and the facilities you have. And I have to admit, I've been to Brisbane a few times. I just didn't appreciate how beautiful uh, your campus is and how centrally located it is. We, we, my family, as I said to people here, we love coming to Brisbane and, uh, and uh, now I have another excuse to come here and don't even have to leave the city and just walk, walk straight from the hotel to this wonderful campus you have. Now I'm going to take you a journey through uh, some of the work we do. Um, <clears throat> and, but before I do that, I'd like to emphasize uh, that this would not have been possible without all the fantastic people, the team I had with me through the years. This is taken uh, on the morning after uh, my home country, Iceland, uh, won a soccer game against another small island in Europe called England. So, uh, <laughs> Uh, although my two, uh, uh, my PhD student here, Jen, and my postdoc at that time, Celine, they were somewhat reluctant to, uh, to come into this photo because they're from France and we were just about to meet France in the next game, but they actually prevailed in that one. I like to think of evolution of chemistry as something that going sort of from the, uh, from the simple to the more complex and uh, the... Uh, the birth of chemistry as a science can be traced back to people like Lavoisier, who recognized uh, such things as the oxygen and nitrogen molecule. And then Wöhler taught us that there's nothing magical about the molecules that make up life. You can make urea in a lab, and that was the start of uh, molecular, in particular, organic chemistry. And then, as some of you would appreciate very well here if you work with uh, Chris Banner and, and Leoni, it actually was a bit of a stretch for organic chemists that you could have macromolecules. Uh, back in the early 20th century, it took storing and some time to convince people that there are such things as, as polymers. Um, organic chemists had a hard time imagining anything bigger than with molecular weight 1,000 could exist. So we went from these sort of smaller to bigger, and then there was another conceptual leap in the sort of late 20th century by people like Chamberlain, uh, Donald Cram, Charles Pearson, that, uh, well, chemistry extends beyond the molecules about how molecules interact together and form structures. And that's what we call supramolecular chemistry. And well, I think we are continuing on this journey towards complexity and function. So supramolecular chemistry to me is the chemistry of non-covalent intermolecular uh, interactions. It's reversible. And it comes in two broad sort of categories, molecular self-assembly and molecular recognition. And it's easier to explain the difference by looking at uh, nature for uh, inspiration. Molecular self-assembly is how molecules come together to form something functional, like a single-stranded DNA forms a double-stranded helix through uh, uh, intermolecular interaction, supramolecular chemistry. Or even in the case of a peptide chain, which has a programmed intramolecular, supramolecular structure in it, so it starts to fold into these sort of secondary tertiary structures, and then even tertiary structures come together to form protein complexes. Whereas molecular recognition is more like host guest chemistry, uh, you might be quite familiar with here from work like uh, Kathleen's uh, fantastic work in that space, uh, which in nature again is, uh, is very important for things like ion carriers and channels, not to mention enzyme specificity. Now, so for me, supramolecular chemistry, the chemistry of life, I know it's sort of maybe a bit harsh to the biologists to say, but the cell is just a bunch of very few categories of molecules. Fatty acid, DNA, amino acids, it's all very simple, really. 
It's how they interact. It's the supramolecular chemistry that brings life to life. It's how a bag of messy molecules becomes alive, which is the big challenge for us to solve now. And that can be done, I think, through supramolecular chemistry. So we're sort of diverging in my group into three different diverging, converging. I'm not sure in which direction we're going sometimes, but there's sort of three broad themes, and within I'm sure smaller themes. I won't cover all of them today, but complexity in chemistry, the ultimate aim being can we create life-like biomimetic function, uh, making biohybrid systems, so conjugating things together from biology with uh, from synthesis, and gels in particular, and also protein folding, all the complex systems. Synthetic biology, bottom-up, and protocells, can we make life from the bottom-up? Protocells, can we make protocells, tools to recreate a cell container, and then use that to look at function and create, uh, understand it and create some interesting systems? And in particular, I've been interested in polymersomes as protocells, and it's a review from us recently in that space. And then something I actually started in my PhD on cell replicating molecules, but I come back to now, which is origin of life. How did life emerge? Cell assembly origin of life, functional complexity first. These are the, some of the really big questions. So within the uh, synthetic life domain, if you come from the bottom up, so there's the top-down approach, which Craig Ventura and others are famous for, where they're trying to take the cell and make it more simpler by deleting genes to see what's the minimal number of genes you can have in a cell. That's all very nice. But we are interested in this sort of part of the domain from the chemist point of view. Can you establish something really simple and make it more complex and more functional till you start to see something resembling life? So synthetic life, what do we need? The cell is the simplest unit of our organism. It's highly efficient, it's highly complex. And this is a really key thing. It requires an energy source. And what we need to start to do now is to depart from the equilibrium land Life is about things out of equilibrium, non-equilibrium, far from equilibrium. There's a bit of a terminology battle going on, but whatever you call it, we're not at equilibrium. The other thing about these systems is that they're not homogeneous. There is phase separation, there are compartmentalization. So life is also non-homogeneous, not really heterogeneous in the same sense as catalyst. So Sieb and Otto is one of the leading person in this sort of systems chemistry field. He said, the holy grail of system chemistry, the de novo synthesis of life. Can we make chemical, the chemical synthesis of life from scratch in the lab? I think we can do this. I think it's a bit like the human genome, though. This will take 30 to 100 years. But um, I hope I will be part of that journey. Now, going back to the basics, what do you have to do sometimes, though, with some very simple things? You've got to look at how... <sighs> Complexity arises out of the simplest cases. So I've been working on these binding constants for, well, 20 years in many ways. So this is simply trying to measure the interactions between two molecules, and it's often done by these sort of titration experiments. You get some sort of response. This is all very simple for a one-to-one -one equilibrium. We teach this to first-year students. As soon as you go to a one-to-two system, things get more complicated because now we can have, once you have the first guest bond, you can have some interactions between that binding site that you've, you filled and the vacant one. And therefore, uh, we can have these things called cooperativity, positive, negative, and no cooperativity. So complex system is not actually really straightforward, as people may think. When you bother doing the maths, you bother doing experiments properly, though, you can learn a lot of really interesting things. And this is an example from a couple of years ago. We made this incredibly simple host, except it has two sites for cations and two for anions. In a competitive solvent, it doesn't even bind to anions. But it does bind to cations in a non-cooperative uh, way. In non-competitive solvents, you get negative cooperativity. Whereas once you bind cations, you turn on the anion binding here, so you get positive cooperativity. And we will not have been able to work this all out unless you do the detailed analysis of the titration data. But if you do that, you can do so much more. And yeah, this is something chemists, many people, probably including myself, went to chemistry because we don't like maths. <laughs> but to do this, you just actually have to deal with a little bit of mass. It's not very complicated, but yeah, as you can see here, if you're trying to model your binding term for one to two equilibria, you actually are dealing with a cubic equation. And what, one of the problems I've been trying to solve in that space lately is that people, when they do that, they've been doing it either with some in-house software, which requires 
learning program, uh, complex programming like C++ or whatever, and then when the postal goes, no one knows how to use it. That's usually the problem. Or they buy some expensive black box program to do the modeling. This is the same problem in kinetics. I'm sure Steve would and, and Chris would know that too. Uh, buy some black box programs, and, 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 and that's actually not consistent with this idea of open access. So what we've been doing over the last few years came out of this review when I published my MATLAB code for this, uh, is to solve these and also try to solve the problem in storing organizing data. So we, we came up with this project called supramolecular.org. It's a website. It's been used now by more than 20,000 people and over 50 citations just in the last two years. And all it does simply is that people can upload their raw data in actual format. You hit a button to select your binding model. And then what you get, you can export your data out or you can save it to a, like a Dropbox type uh, URL. I don't think I'm going to be game enough to this is probably not now, I was going to say. So if, if, this, uh, if you went and clicked on this uh, website here, uh, you would be able to see both the raw and the uh, calculated data from this experiment. OK. <coughs> so the next thing I want to say, uh, tell you a little bit about this biohybrid system, um, bioconjugates. And again, this started very simple. I'm an organic chemist by training, as Steve mentioned. I did my PhD with Max Crossley in organic and supramolecular chemistry. And to me, a protein is just another chemical on the shelf. And it is. You can do chemistry on proteins. The problem is to do it selectively. That's kind of harder. What people do with uh, labeling proteins, like the biologists, they usually just randomly hit one of the lysine residues because your primary amine on the lysine is very reactive. And you can put your dye on that way. Problem is, most proteins have many lysines on the surface, so you have no idea where your dye is going. However, cysteine is often quite conserved, and there's few of them. In many proteins, you have none, or you can then engineer one in by genetic modification, or you have one. And malamide chemistry is very mild, very selective at the right pH. So you can now label the proteins in a very specific way. So we've been playing with this for a while. What we wanted to do here is to put um, a light-activated uh, chromophore, ruthenium complex on. And this sounds like deceptively simple chemistry, actually. But it's not. Even making these things, there's something like 10, 20 different ways of making these, including so-called green methods that gave black tar. But the best way to make this was a two-step process. And then what we have to do was to install this malamide functionality at the end. And we realized that, well, yes, you can imagine making first this ligand here with a malamide on and then try to make a ruthenium complex. That doesn't work. Because malamides, if anyone here worked with malamide, you, you just have to breathe on them. And they will react with themselves in some weird DSL reaction or with whatever else is around. So we realized we need to borrow here from Shampi Shavats' idea of chemistry on a complex. You make the organometallic complex first, and then you do the chemistry on it. And then it works quite well. And I said, this is my dream uh, junk journal to establish one day and try to get money of people. Call it Acta Metallica. We'll publish this stuff in that one. If I, uh, with a new omics journal. That's a good hashtag, at least. Um, so once you have your ligand with a malamide, you can just mix this together in water, stir overnight. And this is isolated yield by chromatography. We're going to chemistry, we isolate things on a flask, uh, fast protein liquid chromatographic columns. We sometimes even get higher than this. And you can purify this and analyze it and whatnot. Now, you might have picked up that when we made one half this molecule, why don't we make the symmetrical one and do something cool like making a protein dimer? I have no idea why we want to make a protein dimer, but we just thought we should do it. We're on something very strange problem here. Once we got this base malamide, which is really easy to make, we could never get more than 1% yield of these protein dimers. <sighs> because we forget one little thing. Yes, these are chemicals. They're just proteins. But they are unusual in one way. They are big, and they've got a lot of charges on them. So if you take this base malamide, you put 10 equivalents of cytochrome C on, it will immediately react with one end, and then absolutely nothing will happen. You can then throw in BSA, and you can get 30% yield. It's because you, in, one, in this case here, you've got this big positive blob. And another positive blob is not going to come anywhere near it. But if you ha make, make the uh, monofunctionalization of one of the positive blob, and then you bring a negative blob, that works quite well. 
We couldn't believe people hadn't spotted this, but when we published it, we actually realized there's only, at that point, there was only like 10 examples of large protein diamonds in the literature. Because everyone goes for the homodimer first, that's what you want to make, and in most cases it doesn't work, unless there's very little charge interaction between them or some other favorable interaction. Making the hetero uh, diamonds is much easier if they have charge complementarity. So, protein folding. Now this was a, one of these sort of stories when you end up doing something completely different than you thought. We started working with this uh, guy here, Paul Kermy at UNSW. He had discovered uh, a few years earlier, this was published in Nature, this photosynthetic light harvesting protein from algae. It's slightly unusual because it doesn't have porphyrins, it has tetrapyrroles in it. It's soluble, it's not membrane bound, and it's also made up in the same way as hemoglobin. Two big beta units, two small alpha units. The reason why they got this into nature was that Greg Schultz, who did the spectroscopy, they saw this quantum coherence. Now, they agree now that no one really knows what that means, but essentially, if you do the femtosecond version uh, of a 2D animal experiment with lasers, you see off-diagonal off coupling between the chromophores. So that's quantum coherence. I'm not going to go further into that debate, but we wanted to play with these and start to link some synthetic chromophores to this. So we needed to actually isolate uh, the subunits, and that's easy to do. You drop, drop the pH down to pH 2, and the protein unfolds. And we can actually even then separate the alpha and the beta unit by uh, HPLC. What we did then, we thought it was really straightforward. Well, we just took that mixture and we titrated back to pH 7 and nicely forms a protein, 80% yield. When we started looking at the literature, hardly anyone had done anything on quaternary proteins like this. No one had done taken a quaternary complex, unfolded it, and then refolded it. Sounds bizarre. Um, and we had actually, there were all the journals we tried before, that we were lucky actually, that's the case, but there were all the journals we tried before this, which just simply didn't believe, you can't be right, no one has ever done this. Just can't be right. And they even told us so without giving us any references. It's always very helpful when people say, this has been done, but give you, don't give references. So the good thing here, though, you can also take the two different solutions and mix them together. And now that was all very nice. And then we did what I call the most expensive fingerprint experiment in history. So Greg Schultz has this two-photon uh, echo spectroscopy setup. As I said, basically it uses the same pulse sequences like in 2D Cauchy NMR, except with two femtosecond lasers. So you can imagine how much that will cost. But what he showed me that, so this is what the spectra looked like. You can see these off-diagonal peaks here. What we used it for was simply like a fingerprint IR. We showed that the coherence, which is extremely sensitive to the position of the chromophore, is the same before and after folding. <laughs> so didn't really do anything else with it here, but it helped us confirming that the folded structure was the same. But what we saw then is that the kinetics are quite interesting. If you just take the beta unit and refold it, pH 7, it will fold. We can see this by CT and fluorescence. But then it starts to aggregate and crush out. The alpha unit, which is only 8 kilodelton, doesn't fold at all. But if we mix them together, the beta folds up the beta, uh, alpha one, and then they dimerize. So this is what we call self-chaperoning, and we can show that also because the yield is concentration dependent and so on. And here's the sort of the, one of the kinetic traces. So, so this is actually now pointing to a real mechanism in nature, and it fits with some of the data from the biologists that sometimes one protein subunit will fold another one. And in this case, actually, that <coughs> second, the, the chaperone unit is only synthesized when the cell needs it. And they will immediately grab onto the other subunit to refold and, and make the full complex. What we're doing now is actually to take subunits from different algae proteins that are related and try to make unnatural hybrids with these things. Okay, so I'm gonna jump now over to polymersomes of protocells. So I probably don't have to tell some part of the audience here what polymersomes are. They are synthetic vesicles, or sometimes called polymer vesicles. They are self-assembled from amplophilic polymer building blocks. So unlike liposomes, which are made out of small amplifiers like fatty acids and phospholipids, these are made out of big, long polymers with amplophilic nature, a hydrophilic block and a hydrophobic block. And if you make a polymersome, you can uh, have an aqueous inner core and an aqueous outer core. And this is really useful for drug delivery and other things. And what I like about these things, too, is that we can actually characterize them. We have access now to cryo-TEM, so we can see when we make these things. 
Uh, here's one example from our work. This is from Alex Mason. Uh, we just use set RRP, which is one very simple version of the Rust sort of family. But um, we, these are very simple block of polymers. But, but I'm quite proud of this. What we did, so what people had tried to do is to make polymersomes with asymmetrical membranes. Because that's what natural membranes are. They've got a different charge on the inside than the outside. So our idea was to use a block of polymer with a hydrophobic block, boring old uh, methyl acrylate, and then one hydrophilic block, which is negatively charged at pH 7, which is the acrylate, and one neutral, which is the PEG one. Now we did, and we could make tri-blocks, and if we make the bigger tri-block of one kind, that one will point outwards, and the smaller one inwards. Well, Alex realized, well, why not just make him the dye blocks, but make the head groups in the relative sizes we want and mix these together? Will that work? Well, actually, it does. Because, um, so the idea is that if you, say, have a big polyacrylate block, uh, dye block, and one, and mix in with the dye block with a small peg one, they will they'll make a membrane like this. Likewise, if you make the, the big pipe block with the, um, the big peg one, they will go on the outside, this one inside. You'll see in a moment why we're trying to do this. One reason why we want to do this is we want to then to encapsulate proteins in the membrane of these things. That's actually what we really after. That's for the protocell work. And the nice thing about this one, we can just take the polymer in, in, in low molecular weight of peg and add it to water with the proteins and then um, protein encapsulation that way. Now, to prove this uh, happened, we just simply did see the potential measurement. We could show that when we made the hybrid that should form uh, with a peg on the outside, the see the potential is very much similar to a peg only type vesicle. It doesn't change much with pH. The one with, which should have the, the acrylate on the outside, I block one, shows a much stronger pH behind, uh, behavior and is much more negatively charged. So this is what we published. What happened then, actually, was a bit of a surprise. Now, we were working with this protein. This is a cytochrome C oxidase. It's a proton pump. It's also the, the, uh, the final step of the electron transport chain. But it's also a proton pump, so it doesn't just take uh, water and split it into oxygen and protons. It also pumps protons across the membrane. It has an asymmetry in the charge. So we've been trying to put this into polymersomes and liposomes for 10 years. What we realized is that we can only, it always goes one way. It pumps only one direction. We can measure the pumping easily, but it only seems to pump in one way. We wanted to flip it so we pump the protons the other way. And that was the whole idea of making the polymer membranes asymmetrical. We were hoping the charge of the polymer membrane would flip the protein. So did it work? No, of course not. Otherwise, I would have published this. <laughs> what happened is that the protein, so what happened, this case is what we were expecting. The positive side on the protein, as usual, points inwards and the negative outwards where the peg is. So when we used the other block of polymer mixture, we were hoping, well, uh, the peg should go on the outside, the cytochrome oxidase should flip and pop your uncle. No, the protein flipped the block of polymers. So we can see it from the seed of potential measurements now. They're all the same. It doesn't matter whether we use this combination of bi-block polymers or this one. We always get the same seed of potential behavior. What it means is that the cytochrome C oxidase and we think it's a curvature issue. It wants to follow a certain curvature on the polymersomes. So if it has the wrong block of polymer to form a membrane with, it will just flip them till it gets that membrane. It's quite interesting. Um, so the reason why we want to do this, though, and we have also done that, we were building this mega monster here. We want to put cytochrome C on one side, shine lights on it. We have a light activating chromophore link to it. So we built up a proton gradient in one direction, and then we put an ATP synthase also into this membrane. And then the ATP synthase will use that proton gradient to make ATP. And we actually succeeded in this. But uh, this was in the dying days of Alex's PhD, and we need to uh, uh, come back and do a few more controls on this. So getting a new student to start on this soon. But so this is the, the overall arching aim here is that we can create temporal energy gradients in here, either by proton gradients or ATP gradients. So, using light to create an energy difference between compartments. That's sort of the, the nuts of this idea. And it works. And then the next thing we want to do with that is that we want to use the transient proton gradients here to say turn on or turn off the cell assembly. And then when you turn the lights off, the proton gradient will dissipate and the cell assembly structure will disappear as well. So it's a bit like the act inside the skeleton goes back and forth. 
Okay. Now, another thing we started thinking about some years ago, can we make non-spherical polymersomes? To do that, we want to induce directional hydrophobic forces between membrane components. One of the underappreciated things about aromatic interactions, or especially large aromatic systems like the rhylings, naphthalenes, perlines, and so on, is that aromatic interactions are directional, but are actually mainly hydrophobic. And they become stronger, much stronger in water than in organic solvents. But because of that directionality, I mean, unlike most of the hydrophobic interactions you can play with in polymer or supramolecular chemistry, you can also get some directionality. So this is a fascinating little project which I've done in uh, collaboration with Martina Stenzel, who some of you know very well, and we had a joint student here, Ken Wong, um, with an amazing talent. It's the simplest block called polymer, again, from raft chemistry, pair hydrophilic chain, and then it's just a copopolymer of nipon and this unit here, which we then link to a pairling, which is soluble. Now, I should point down the nipon here is in stretch ratio that we don't see any, um, um, it's essentially hydrophobic even at zero degrees, probably even at minus 10 if we could get down there. We don't see any thermal changes with this one. But it's this guy who plays a key role here. We've got a large aromatic surface. And what happens is that we start off in a good solvent THF, but actually, and this is crucial in the paper, we show this, it's already aggregated in THF into sort of a lamella sheet. And you add water, and you let the THF go away. And then this lamella sheet have to close over. And then the whole thing is really about how quickly do you do that. So by tuning the ratio between the THF and water, you can allow this structure to reach the thermodynamic equilibrium type structure, which of course is spherical, or, as we showed, if the THF, uh, uh, we have a really small amount of THF and large amount of water, we trap these structures in different stages. So we can get uh, ellipsoid micelles or slightly bigger polymersomes. Just depending on the THC con THF concentration, we can make structures of different shapes and size. And what's important here is that we're always making them from the exact same block of polymer. This is not like those of you who come from polymer land like the PISA polymerization reactions where you change slightly the size of the head groups or the, or, the, or the hydrophobic group. We're always working with exactly the same one. We're just playing with the solvent, and we can make different types of structures. What's really nice, too, and that's thanks to a referee, he said, are these really thermodynamically stable? Well, they are not. If you take these structures and warm them up to 80 degrees, they all become spherical. So they are still kinetically trapped, but at room temperature of 37 degrees, they are, they are stable. This allows us to do one more thing. We can now take the same block of polymer, we may make either lepsoid or, or anneal, we may make spheres, and do very much, you know, next to next, oranges versus oranges, not oranges versus apples, comparison of, say, how well they penetrate into, this is not published, into tumor spheroids. So, again, the uh, ellipsoid go much further into the center of the spheroid. Um, and it spears. And this is even nice. This is work with Chris Directira up the river. So I always get confused. Ratsomize, one of those poor little things. Uh, <laughs> and so he grew uh, um, uh, tumors on these, and then we injected Ken's polymersomes in. And because they're highly fluorescent, we don't need to stain them. It's nice, isn't it? And we can see here the spears do what spears normally do in these animals. They go straight for the liver, and then they go out of the urine. Whereas the lipsides stay much more along in the animal, and they also are hitting the tumor much better. So this is really, really working. And um, 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 so this is sort of shows you that just simply playing some supramolecular trick, you can actually do something useful. OK, gel formation. That's my next level of complexity. Um, my kids love these jelly beans. Jelly beans are just denatured protein chains that encapsulate water in a solid state form. You can also form them from certain synthetic polymer. You can also form synthetic type organogels where the bulk phase is an organic solvent. But instead of using covalent polymers, you can also form gels with small molecules. So in that case, you've got either small organic molecules aggregating an organic solvent. This is in cyclohexane, for instance. Or you've got them in water. And the whole thing about actually gels are quite hard to define exactly, but 
my definition is you've got a matrix encapsulated water in a solid-like environment. The good thing about the ones we work with is that the concentration of the water is something like 99% or more. We, in fact, have supergelators which form gels at 0.01 weight percent. So per weight, the water is 99.99%. And why we and others are so interested in these materials is that they seem to, structurally speaking, on a nano or micro scale, mimic the extracellular matrix. The pink stuff here is the extracellular matrix. This is one of our gels. An extracellular matrix is very important biologically. It, it controls cell-cell interactions and um, um, stem cells and whatnot. So we think if we can engineer these molecules correctly, we can help, help us with tissue regeneration, for instance. OK, so where this field, in some ways, the modern version of this peptide-based cell assembly gel field came from was work by Gassit. He was interested in uh, uh, amyloids, 8-beta amyloids, and he spotted that often he had got this crucial diphenylene repeat in these peptides. And he realized that diphenylene on its own will aggregate into the right condition of water to form tube that you can then fill with silver and make a silver nanowire. He then went on to that uh, to publish that if you go to a slightly higher concentration and if you've ever made peptides, you often do it by what's called FMOC chemistry. If you leave the protecting group on, FMOC diphenylene will form a gel of 1% weight by uh, volume. And then um, Rain Orline took that up a year later and showed that actually you can, in some cases, grow cells uh, on top of these gels. And that's sort of how the whole field exploded. Now, how do these things form? And this is the mechanism that Rain Orline published about seven, eight years ago, and I'm going to show you it's probably wrong. So FMOC diphenylene is actually not soluble if you just isolate it first in ether or whatever, and then you try to put it into water. It doesn't do anything. If you add a little bit of base, you get it into solution. Sometimes have to beat the crap out of it in a sonicator, but it will eventually go into a solution. So it's just the ionization state here of that terminal carboxy group that actually controls that. And what Drain said then, and he's right about, it's then if you take this and you go back, you lower the pH, if you just throw in a lot of acid, it'll just crash out. If, on the other hand, you go slowly back and you don't put in, in so much acid that you go way down to pH 3 or something, one way, a nice way of doing this, this is Dave Adams' work. You can use gluconolactone here, and if you mix those two together, it slowly gets hydrolyzed and releases the acid in a very controlled, homogeneous way. And then you get a gel. Now, the premise of this, and actually I should say, many of you may or may not have made gels accidentally, because they're sort of halfway between something which is soluble and crystalline. And many organic chemists have told me they make gels when they're trying to recrystallize something. It just goes wrong. Got a gel. And 30 years ago, you would throw it out. Now we would publish in soft matter. So, so now the problem with this was that we actually, we thought this too. We thought that this molecule here is unimolecular dissolved. And when you add the acid, it forms the fibers. Sounds logical. It's wrong. We did some sun, exp sun experiments, neutron scattering experiments. And yes, with this particular gelator, we can see that that Time zero, it has this profile, and it changes rapidly as we add the acid. This one, on the other hand, which is the FMOC VV, has the same SANS profile before and after we add the acid. And what's more, if you look at the NMRs at high pH or high PD, yes, this indole debrid is unimolecular dissolved, but the FMOC one, you can't see what's going on in the NMR. It's not unimolecular dissolved. In fact, if we take a drop of this, put it on my color, dry to AF, and we can see fibers everywhere. You don't see that here. So what turns out to be the case is that we were wrong, and most people were wrong. Yes, there are gelators like the indole one, where it's unimolecular dissolved. When you add an acid, it will form a gel. But in many cases, we think this is the majority of gelators. They are pre-assembled uh, into fibers at high pH, but because of the, of the charge repulsion, they still don't form a gel. And then once you add the acid, the neutralization will help uh, bring the fibers together and it gels the solvent. This is actually, as it turns out, really useful. Because one of the best ways to make gels if you want to do something biological is that you make them first a slightly high pH and then you mix them with a the biological media. 
and the media lowers the pH and has salts to screen these chances, and voila, you get your gel immediately. Here's an example. This is a gel from, uh, this is not published, this is glycine diphenylene RGD, which is a very popular epitope in, in biology, polymer, and supermolecular chemistry. So it binds to the integrin of cells. And once we make a gel out of this, we can see these fibroplasts moving along on the, on the gel. This is probably a more impressive example. This did, we did publish. We took a small gelator. And we just want to, again, being chemist, actually, okay, does this head group really matter? Everyone has been working with these FMOC groups because that's what you make peptides from normally. But we made this uh, head group here, PDZ, and we put it on GVV, and we made gels out of both. And what we did then was to take gel slice, put a tumor spheroid on top, these little artificial blobs of cells that uh, mimic a tumor, and then put more gel on top. So what we're doing here is sort of compared to what people do also with major gel, except we use now a nicely chemically well-defined system with major gel. No one knows what's in it, and it can never be used for that reason. And you can see here, interestingly enough, that with the PTZ one, we can see this period growing happily, whereas the FMOC one, it does not. So this is why chemistry matters. So even though really subtle change in the head group, you get different biological responses. Essentially, you can see it here. Once we stain the spheroid, the cells in the FMOC one are dying. So not every peptide gelator is innocent. We found this. Some of them are cytotoxic. They kill cells in vitro. We know also from other people, and may not do it in vivo, vice versa. And this is the problem with the field, too. We need to just test that. But this guy here works well with these steroids. They're, they're growing happily. They don't grow as well as in major gel. And that's simply because we don't have all those mysterious growth factors that are in major gel. So no one can ever compete with it if you're just trying to grow big ones. They're also going to be chemically well-defined. And let me show you this. This is um, my former postdoc, and now NHMRC fellow. So he took this idea further and developed surfaces based on lysine peptides. And he can grow neurons for up to one and a half, two months on these substrates. And they really are behaving just like uh, uh, all the substrate these people use. And uh, this video will show you in a moment. This is actually the cells. Uh, you can barely see them. They're sort of sitting here. And then you will see at some point they fire and they talk to each other. So we can grow functional neurons now on these sort of materials. OK, so my last part of this trip is origin of life. So how did life emerge? We will actually never be able to say that with a certainty. And has nothing to do whether you have any philosophical or religious uh, uh, ideas about that. It's just simply we cannot go back in time. To some way, all we're going to try to do here is to re try to see though, what could have happened and how can we understand that from things we can do in a lab or on a computer. So this is what Earth looked like five, four billion years ago. Well, not quite. This is a Mivatna um, uh, volcano about 25 years ago, quite close to my home. Uh, so. But um, it wasn't the most hospitable place. There was no ocean layer. There was not much landmass, but there was probably some. Uh, there were some, some really, I'm, I'm working now with a geologist, uh, and uh, I'm, I, I get fascinated by what I hear they think they can say now about the early Earth geology, atmosphere, and chemistry. It was really a different world. I mean, the sky even looked different. It was sort of a, I think he said, sort of orange sky, not blue one. Now, as I say, I went into this um, partly because of my PhD, because it was some cell-replicating molecules. Um, and I've always been interested since then. For me, OK, what we know pretty much now is that there was something resembling a cell as early as 3.8 billion years ago. We can also assume that it started from, well, some sort of soup. Whether those molecules were made in sort of miller type experiments on Earth or rained down from meteoroids, it's not entirely clear. And if it's from meteoroids, you're just moving the problem to another space. But there's some good evidence that you can have, by very simple chemistry, either here or somewhere else, a formation of very simple building blocks of life, like amino acids and sugars and so on. It's not easy chemistry, though, and people like John Sutherland and all that are working on that still. 
I'm not interested in that. I'm not going to compete with them. I'm interested in what happens after that. What happens once you start to get these first non-specific condensations into short peptides or RNA nucleotides? This is sort of different between the so-called peptide world, the RNA world theories, probably both of them wrong. It's the supramolecular chemistry between these things. I think it's the fascinating bit. Some point, too, you get into even bigger question. What is life? There is actually no, this is a dirty secret. Make a biologist angry. Ask them to define what biology is, and they will walk away. Because there is no definition of life. There's a whole entire discipline based on something that cannot be defined at the moment. I think we will solve that definition soon, and it will come from chemistry. But they won't like that either. Also, what's the origin of um, uh, evolution? It's easy to explain evolution once you get to actual genes. But is there something we can show in chemical system resembling evolution that explains, in simplest terms, what evolution in these sort of system is? How do you get from a messy mixture to direction towards functionality? So that means, in other words, probably selection pressures and so on. So I'm interested in the two main questions at the moment. What is the role of energy flow in creating order? For instance, can we create energy-dependent, dissipated, silver-simple system that oscillate and beat and so on? This is why you see now, I mentioned earlier, these protocell uh, polymersomes with a proton pump. So what happens when you can turn on and off assembly inside them? So this is sort of trying to understand how do you get sort of temporal self-assembly under energy flow? And the other one is how do we create evolutionary selection pressures in several simple systems? What is the chemical origin possibly of Darwinian evolution? One of the things I'm now interested in, we're just about to start, this is sort of more hypothetical for the end of the talk, investigate how lipid, lipids, peptides, RNA interact and stabilize certain assemblies under fluctuating uh, conditions. Okay, let's talk about the responsive oscillating system because life, original life aside, they're actually really interesting. And some of you know Andres Volter very well. He, he had a really nice review on this a couple of years ago, explaining the difference between what he calls classical responsiveness, which is where you have a system where you often add a chemical agent or lights or whatever to turn on some assembly, and then you have to do something else when you want to kill it again. So in my normal gels, I would be, I need to add an acid here, and then if I want to ungel it, I could add a base. Yeah? Transient ones, cell-vacular ones, are the ones where you just turn them on, and they have a certain lifetime. And they're usually playing tricks with kinetics here. So it could be that you've got an activation pathway that activates yourself assembly, and a different deactivation pathway. The activation is much faster, but because the activation depends on some sort of fuel, it, that rate eventually goes to zero, and everything collapses. The difference here, this one is slightly different. Then you make an assembled state, and then a deassembled state. So you're not going back to the beginning, but to a new state. And the two rate constants are very different. Nature does this. So the active filament polymerization is essentially like this one. You activate with ATP, you make, an, uh, uh, you make the active filament. And when you go to the other end on the thread milling, uh, ATP goes to ATP, so it deactivates. And then you can actually recycle them back here by a different mechanism. So, so that's sort of how nature does uh, active polymerization. So we just, as I published, in, I think, I believe, quite a nice example of this sort of case. We, we, made, uh, we took this gelator here, and this is actually quite well-known, simple organogelator. Actually 100 years old, but Jan van Esch and Dwelt has done some really nice work on this, where he does esterification reactions with a chemical fuel. What we did to realize this molecule in itself is one of these sort of pH-dependent gelators. So at high pH, this one is actually truly unimolecularly dissolved. You can see a nice NMR if you go to a high PD. No problem. If we add an acid, it will form a gel. If we use one particular type of acid, i.e. trichoboxyethylphosphine hydrochloric acid, you form the gel, but then you will reduce it as well. And so when you add the T-shape in, immediately form a gel. But then the T-shape starts to reduce this disystine here to cysteine, and the cysteine is not aggregated. So your gel dissociates again. And we can measure this in many different ways. The reality is the nicest way of doing this. We can vary the ratio of T-shape, which is essentially like the anti-fuel here, and our starting material. And we can see that gel, this is log scale, so 0.01 hour is something like um, 
um, like less than a minute, as soon as we can measure uh, after mixing, we immediately have a gel, and the strength of the gel as often depends on concentration. But then the T-shape starts to reduce this guy, and the gel collapses. You can see we can control the lifetime of the gel. So by varying a ratio, we can create a gel that has X lifetime, down to a few tens of minutes. Next thing I want to do with this is take this into a microfluidic device where I hopefully can turn down the lifetime to seconds on and off. So, and what we showed, we didn't publish this bit, is that you can recycle. You can take this and re-oxidize it with hydrogen peroxide. It's not the greatest one because this is not fully reversible, and I believe we need to explore some different oxidants here. But yeah, you can go cycle. So here we form a gel. We can see it from the scattering. Then it collapses. We add hydrogen peroxide. You reform a gel. Um, so we can really go back and forth. We've got a better idea how we can uh, do this now. And what we can do here, for instance, we can do what we call program dissipation. So what we did here, sort of easy to explain here, is that we have a bath full of T-shep. Let's say we got 30 millimolar of it, and we throw in 10 millimolar aliquots of the gelator. Immediately forms a gel and collapses within 40 minutes. Then we throw in another aliquot, immediately forms a gel, collapses. But when we put in the fourth aliquot, the third aliquot, we used up all the T-shape, and now there's nothing left to reduce, so we just have a gel. So we can program a number of cycles, we can program the lifetimes. Because we worked out all the kinetics, we know how the system works. So that's sort of um, the nuts, uh, the guts of this work. But as I said, now we're going to move on to systems where we can have transient structure on much shorter uh, time scale through microfluidics, and we can be more truly reversible by using the right combination of reductants and oxidants. Okay, so that's our work towards making oscillating beating assemblies. And I'll finish up with tell you how we're going to do this. This is, say, really uh, early days on that one. This is a collaboration with Martin van Kranendonk. Uh, he's an origin of life geologist at uh, UNSW. He used to work out in the Pilbara. He's also worked in Greenland. Uh, on dating some of the earliest signs of life. Interestingly enough, um, Charles Darwin thought as early back as 1871 that perhaps life started in a warm little pond. This was one of the most popular theories for a long time, but then in the last 30 years, there's been a lot of push for a different original life scenario. And deep sea vents, because there's some interesting chemistry going on in deep, deep sea vents in oceans. I've got a big problem with that one. As an organic slash supramolecular chemist, I can't quite see how you can control the dilution factors there. If you make something interesting, how is it going to stick around before it does something really useful? Um, there are other problems with that. Uh, but This one is coming back into favor, and that's kind of thanks to Martin and also um, David Diemer and others. Because what if this is a hot, fluctuating little pool? And this was interesting enough where my origin uh, come back in. because So the David Diemer model, I call it the geyser vault, is essentially you get your prebiotic soup forming, which may or may happen on Earth or might come out from interstellar uh, meteorites. You won't believe it, but I think even nowadays there's something like millions of tons of carbon raining down on Earth every day, every year. So in those days it was even more. There's um, My colleague Tim Schmidt worked out recently that there's all this interstellar grease, like the trillions of what look like almost like fatty acids in space, trillions of tons. So there's stuff out there. Once you accumulate that, uh, you concentrate that in hot pools. We'll come back to the moment. And then life emerges there, and then it evades into the ocean. There's also a bit of a problem with the idea that life originated the oceans, because the salt balance, the sodium-potassium balance in our cells does not match that at all. It's just actually that life originated in freshwater. But this key step is that there's sort of this cycling between wet and dry state, and we'll, we'll explain that in a, in a moment, where there's sort of the key things are formation of liposomes and gels and then dehydration. And we've been doing some work also on gels that are encapsulated in liposomes with drugs. This is sort of kind of way of doing drug delivery. So we know we can make these things. So we're going to try to go on from there to here. Just to show the geyser world. So there's a reason. Geyser is actually, there's two words in English from Icelandic that are well known. Geyser is named after the geyser in Hökadal in Iceland. And saga, 
sagas, the Viking sagas, which is often now used over histories. Now, I hadn't appreciated this. Um, the chemistry going on in these places is quite fascinating. Uh, Martin told me that over in Rotorua, they also got one of these sort of places, like in uh, um, Yellowstone in Iceland. You can have one of these pools, like this, 90 degrees, pH 3. You walk 10 meters, stick your pH probe in, and it's pH 11. So just within a very short space, spatially, you can have these massive pH, pH gradients. And what's more, if you think about it, you can have these little hot pools that dry out in the sun and the hot rocks, and then a gaseous splashes in and refills it. So you have a really nice natural mechanism of hot, dry, wet, dry cycles. And what's more, Martin has shown that there's this thing called geyserite. I didn't know that. There are rocks that form in these areas and only in these areas. He found 3.5 billion years ago evidence of these things in the Pilbara. So we know now there was land-based geothermal activity as far back as that and probably even further back. This is not a complete uh, polycot. So this is the theory in, in a nutshell that you start with some lipid amino acid peptide mixtures. When the gaseous splash comes in, you form liposomes with short peptides inside. And then as the, as the, uh, the little pool dries out, you might go through a gel phase. And eventually, at the highest temperature, they can go to 120, 30 degrees. You might get a formation of lamella that, uh, and, and condensation reactions between amino acids. That sort of makes sense. The next step is the really interesting one. When your next gaseous splash comes in, some of these peptides are getting trapped here. And this is the thing. Some, by pure chance, some peptides might stabilize some liposomes. And that means they survive the dilution. And now you've got your chemical selection pressure. And only those liposomes with those peptides survive to the next cycle. And you get a slight increase in complexity that way. David Diemer has shown that something of this seems to be happening with RNA building blocks. But uh, the data is not exactly 100% convincing. But I want to do this now with peptides in the gel phase and really see whether can we go and increase the complexity. So, so when you go a few cycles like this, you will get fitter and fitter system. And it's all going through that selection pressure is the dilution. Once you go below the CMC, the liposome disappears. But some peptides will stabilize some liposomes. They survive to a lower CMC. That's all. But so let me finish off with thanking all the people that have helped me and worked with me over the years. But first and foremost, though, I want to thank um, this wonderful crowd of people. And Black are the ones who are working with me now, my, my students, my PhD and honor students, and postdocs through the year, and visiting fellows. Um, quite a few of them come from Europe and my family. And uh, before I say thank you, I'm just going to put on this uh, slideshow here, which shows the uh, evolution of the team over the years. And with that, thank you again for your attention. It's been a wonderful day here. You've been listening to a podcast from the IFE. To stay up to date with our podcasts, please subscribe to our channel. You can also visit us on the web at qut.edu.au forward slash IFE. And we're also on Twitter at IFE underscore QUT and also on Instagram at IFE.QUT. We really hope you enjoyed this IFE podcast.